Hey everybody, it's Gene Martz, and thanks again for joining me for another episode of Biz Books, where I talk to great authors who write great books about, or somewhere near about, business. Today, my guest is Matt Higgins. Matt has written Burn the Boats, Toss Plan B Overboard, and Unleash Your Full Potential. This is like a uh, pump you up kind of book, Matt, right? It is uh, it, it's an inspiring book and a great book, and I'm glad you wrote it. Thanks so much, first of all, uh, for joining me today. No, thanks for having me. It's a pump, pump you up with some nuance, you know, not yeah. just bombastic, simplistic pump you up, but with uh, with nuance woven throughout and hopefully good storytelling to keep you captivated. It is, and it keeps you um, inspired as well. And, and we'll, we'll dig into some of what we mean in some of the terms here. But first of all, a um, little bit about you, Matt. So how did you come to write the book and what do you do? So uh, I've had many hats, uh, as you would expect from the person uh, claiming the mantle of burn the boats, right? I burned many boats and many chapters, but uh, the most important thing to know about me, the framework is I, I grew up in abject poverty in Queens, New York, and the product of a single mom. And uh, a lot of my early years were framed around doing everything I could to make ends meet, selling flowers on street corners and handbags at flea markets and scraping gum at McDonald's. And so just true abject poverty. I have a box of government cheese sitting right behind me that I keep it as a memento. So I don't forget uh, from whence I come. Uh, but my burn the boats move that inspired this book was a hack that I came up with when I was a kid. And which is basically to uh, drop out of high school at 16 years old and uh, get my GD. Back then, you were allowed to start college theoretically before your, your class even, if you did well enough. And the, 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 the burn the boats move for me was this insane plan was met with derision, as you might imagine, from officialdom. And I realized that the only way I would actually go through with it, uh, even though my instinct said it was right for me, was to burn the boats, to sabotage any ability for me to retreat. So I failed every single class for over two years and I wasn't like a hoodlum. So it was a pretty radical decision. <laughs> and uh, we, could, we could go deeper, but dropped out of high school. I go to college, returned to my prom as I uh, completed my first year of college and on the debate team. And uh, it really compounded a tremendous amount of professional success into a very short period of time. But that's what inspired the book. That is amazing. Um, so so what do you do now? Like, how do you, besides making millions of dollars off this book, um, what else do you do to I mean, earn a living? Yeah, so I, uh, so just to summarize, I am uh, I have created my own uh, firm in partnership with Stephen Ross, who's a big developer, owner of the Miami Dolphins. I've had a meandering career in sports. I used mm -hmm. to oversee the Jets and uh, eventually oversaw the Miami Dolphins as vice chair. And we built this consumer-facing portfolio of great companies. Version 1.0 was to incubate. Uh, some may know uh, Resi, uh, the reservation system we sure. sold to Apple. Version 2.0 was to acquire companies outright. So we own Magnolia Bakery, for those who have a sweet tooth. Uh, partners with David Chang, a lot of food companies, a lot of sports, entertainment, tech. So I sit upon um, what's well over a billion dollar consumer portfolio of brands. And I teach at Harvard Business School, direct to consumer e-com. And I am evangelical about my book. That's who I am at the moment. That is amazing. So man, so if just, you know, if you met me at a party somewhere and and I was just like, hey man, like what do you do for a living? Would you call yourself an author? Would you call yourself an investor, general entrepreneur, that's sales guy, question. development guy? I, I don't need you wear a lot of hats. Yeah, that's a great question. I would, I would, I would um I would say I'm an entrepreneur, even though I hate the word. It's so me cliche. Too. I would say I'm I, I would say honestly, I build and buy businesses and fix ones that are broken. Cool. I would I would give myself a full sentence probably. I hate private equity where I hate I don't like investor because I actually think it minimizes what I do. And I yeah, I I 
I, I helped oversee the rebuilding of the World Trade Center. So I have operating skills, not right. just an investor. I, I get my hands in and I need the dough. Yeah, it's fair enough. I mean, you know, if I were to describe you, I would, I would call you a, you know, a builder and, you know, in an yeah, well, sense, exactly. you're a builder. Well, thank um, you. And you've had a great career just doing that. Okay. Let's get into the book. Okay. So you've learned a lot. This is your opportunity to to share what you've learned over, over this career that you've had. Talk to me, you know, it, it strikes me when I talk to people that run businesses, everybody approaches problems and leadership in a different way. In 2023, people are like data, 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 data-driven business. Everything's got to be data-driven. Uh, those are the decisions we need to be making. It's got to be, you know, information-based. You basically make the point that the data is secondary to to succeeding, and you know your your belief is that people need to make a gut sandwich. So, first of all, explain to me what a gut sandwich is, and explain to me why you think that data is secondary. Yeah, I think I think um I think actually the word data itself is almost uh, hindsight bias, right? It's uh it, it only can be perfectly constructed in retrospect. And so what I mean by a gut sandwich is that the biggest innovations and insights begin with intuition, for which there is very little evidence to support it, and the magnitude of an opportunity or intuition has an inverse relationship to the amount of evidence there is to support it. Right. So, you're early. And then everyone looks for validation in the form of, and we could call this broadly data. You know, my friend Bob thinks it's a great idea, or there's a study, or there's something on the internet. We look for validation, uh, uh, otherwise known as data. Uh, but the green light is never uh, given by data. Like the best decisions aren't launched because you know it's there. They 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 conclude or they are launched with intuition. So it's a gut sandwich. And the simplest illustration of that is Steve Jobs. I mean when he decided he had an intuition that other people would like to carry their Beatles collection in their pocket too. And I'm going to create a device that people don't even know what they need. There was little, the right incrementalist approach would have been to take the CD Walkman and iterate on it. Yeah. But he launched, you know, he launched the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, what was it called? The iPod. Yeah. Um, so, and then, so that's the bottom line. I, 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 to me, it feels like master of the obvious, but somebody had to say it and call nonsense on this data driven approach. So it's not really. You know, it's funny that you take that point of view because uh, you would think that it'd be a contrary point of view. And maybe it, it would have been even a few years ago, but I don't know if you feel the way, Matt, like even coming out of COVID um, with, and social on the internet, the way it is now, there's, there is a lot of data that's out there. And let's face it, people, we, we all have seen people take data and make it, you know, support whatever narrative they wanted to support which basically means that the data itself only has so much value and in the end you're right you know there you know data has some value but in the end it's it's the people that have vision and they have you know guts um that are going to base their decisions it's not the world does not just run on data because that's also subjective does that make sense it does and two points to follow up on that uh, sure. i was just having a lovely conversation with my son this morning about how and i'm trying to demonstrate to this end through mentoring, but how we all think we need an information asymmetry. There's an information arbitrage. You're gonna learn something other people don't know. That's actually not the reality. That's not the kind of arbitrage or uh, asymmetry you should be looking for. It's insight asymmetry, the ability to synthesize information and data that's readily available to everybody. And then what do you do with it? And what do you do with it is framed by the context of your life, your intelligence, you know, your receptivity. Your second point about how people use data as either a tool tool to manipulate the world or frame reference. I use it as a way to manipulate myself. I talk about this in a book a little bit. I, I, I wrote this book so I would read this book. I am the 
anxiety-laden, angst-ridden, imposter syndrome person who needs this book. And whenever I stumble upon, particularly insomnia, I've had these life moments where I'm so mad at myself that I haven't been able to sleep. One of them was the uh, Paris Marathon. And I and I've been up for two days. And I'm like, damn you. <laughs> like, why yeah. do you do this? And I was like, you know what? I bet you this is a study of people who are deliberately sleep deprived. And I bet you that physical performance doesn't suffer nearly as much as mental performance. And running a marathon is physical. And I found a study of some Danish cyclists. Of course, they were tortured and weren't allowed to sleep and they performed just. So I use data, it's like almost like an inside joke as a form of self-manipulation. And whenever I have a problem, I'll find a study from Harvard or somewhere to make me feel better. It's funny that you actually say that. And I think that's really, really true. And and it's the first of all, we all suffer from imposter syndrome. I mean, everybody does, whether they admit it or not. And it's almost as if data has become a crutch to say, well, you know, I, you know, I don't know if people can tell that I'm bullshitting or not. So I'm going to find this study from Harvard that says supports my point of view. So therefore, I must be OK. Um, yeah. But you can't make decisions based on that. The other point that I have on that, and I know we got to move on, but it's just as an interesting point is that we like I run a 10 person company outside of Philadelphia. Right. So. I make, you know, I make decisions. My clients make decisions. Smart people. I mean, I, I, I work with some really smart owners of companies. They, they have data, but let's face it. The last 10% of their decision is a gut. Like when you're hiring somebody and what more important decision can you make in your business? You know, if you're going to hire a key person, you know, you're looking at their resume and you're, you know, getting referrals and you're, uh, you know, having other people interview them and getting input. That's all data. But in the end, it's just like a leap of faith. Like, I hope this guy knows what he's doing. Do you know what I mean? So. And, and, I, I, and I, I'm and passionate about it because uh, I love this phrase. Italians, right? It says the fish rots from the heck Italian, but it's that most uh, problems that you see downstream in a corporation get traced back to leadership, right? right? But I think the reason why we become overly reliant on data in the context is because uh, uh, psychological insights don't scale. Like you can't have some kid who just graduated out of McKinsey reduce EQ to a report. So we overly, you know, on data. And in my experience, the greatest outcomes I've had in business are when I accepted that phrase from the Italians. And I tried to figure out when I had a CEO who's uh, under indexing for self awareness, I asked why. And like, that's the problem, not some downstream problem where he can't retain good talents or it's been the fact that he requires interventions in order to make these moves. So why are they not embracing self-awareness? So my entire career and me personally has been a series of leveling up based upon either personal interventions, but honestly embracing this idea that most of it's about intuition and psychology way more than uh, data. Yeah, it's it. You are hundred percent right, um, and I think intuition and psychology plays an, an enormous role. You wrote some point in the book, and I forget where about you know a drone company that you invested in, uh, where everybody was making fun of you for doing that, and yet you had a lot of faith in the owner. Um, and if you can talk a little bit about that, having empathy um, for the people that you're investing in, the people that you're working with, um, and empathy in yourself, you talk about as well. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I think I think. I think for me, my source of empathy is I witnessed powerlessness when I was a kid and my mother ultimately succumbed on the day I became press secretary to the mayor of New York. I tell that story. I went from 375 McDonald's to eventually uh, actually making 100 grand a year and then she dies that morning, right? And, right. and my empathy is encased within that trauma, which I keep raw and fresh so that when I meet a single mother who's doing the same thing, or I meet somebody stumbling and powerless, I can approach it from a perspective of empathy. So hmm. aside from being, I think the ethical right thing to do, empathy is actually very strategic and useful in the business context because it gives you a 360 view on a person, right? So mm -hmm. I get asked a lot, 
okay, Matt, you talk about self-awareness as the greatest arbitrage entirely within our control in business and personal life, but how do you cultivate it in a corporation or in a leader? And I say, it's actually quite simple. You can't preach it. You can't intellectualize it. You can model it. And the way you model um, actually the unlock for empathy and for self-awareness is to create space, uh, space by allowing yourself to be shockingly vulnerable. So my book is somewhat an exercise in modeling what it takes to create space for self-awareness and vulnerability, because I share things I don't want to share. I share about my testicle being removed and I'm infertile and get radiated. And I talk about being divorced, which I can't even read that page. Mm. Talk about my becoming because I want to illustrate what does it mean to cultivate self-awareness. So long story short, empathy is really important. It's but if you don't have self-awareness, it's hard to get to empathy because you're closed off. Yeah. And I believe the greatest unlocks I've ever had professionally are when I was able to model something shockingly vulnerable mm. and a CEO, a leader felt like, oh, you you didn't die. You know, it would be your yeah. life didn't die. No one fired you because you shared about your one testicle, whatever it is. And uh, and those have been the greatest breakthroughs. But you also think that, I mean, you, you come across a pretty genuine guy. I mean, we've only been speaking for a few minutes and, you know, you've already talked about imposter syndrome and showing being empathy and uh, being vulnerable and, and uh, being you know, really being transparent uh, with yourself. I, I mean, you, you've, you've made investments in different companies. You've built partnerships with different companies. We all know in the end that it's all about trust, you know, and I get, I just get the feeling that people look at you and you know, the people that have gone into business with you and the people that you've gone into business with, you look at each other and you're like, all right, this guy seems like he's being pretty honest. I mean, he's sharing with me about losing his testicle or being, you know, infertile or, you know, you can't get yeah. more transparent than that. Right. That kind of transparency really, really makes a big difference in, in a business relationship, let alone and personal. And I think where, look, where it doesn't resonate with, there's a certain percentage of the population, it's a sociopath or a narcissist. So let's yeah, put that on. Manifest at a CEO founder level. So, like, let's asterisk my my somewhat Pollyannish view of the world. But I think most of us, though, really are on a journey of self discovery. We don't know who put us here, why we're here, where we're going, right? And what we're capable of. And so, we're all in a journey of discovery. And I do think, um, I do think, being so candid does create these opportunities for tremendous breakthroughs. I think where people do get frustrated with me, if I'm holding myself accountable, is I'm doing a lot of different things. Yeah. And, and it, it might feel good to be around me and have these conversations. And then when my attention gets distracted, it might feel not abandoned, but like, where'd you go? And, and, and I'm, I'm one spending a lot of my time feeling guilty and a lot of time dealing with people who are disappointed that I don't provide more. Again, I'm because you're being so nice to me. I feel now the need to disavow the compliment and be honest. Uh, no, I understand. I understand that. And we all have our weaknesses. Have you found this tougher to do over the years, Matt, like to be, transparent and to be as empathetic and honest when um you know i don't know like maybe there's a young woman in the room who doesn't want to hear about you losing your left testicle you know what i mean like there's oh, there's, there's a line <laughs> have you yeah. found it to be more of a challenge no first of all it's clinical so i feel like i'm allowed to talk about losing my left testicle all day long but uh <laughs> right one by the way but um yeah. <laughs> oh it's your right one sorry okay no but it's a great question. I don't, I don't think so. Here's what I love. I'm sure you, I don't know how old you are, right? but I'm 48. 58. What is great about life, it brings all of us to our knees in a very humbling, sometimes humiliating way. But the gift is, oh, oh shit, we're all going to die yeah. and nothing matters. And so right. the greatest gift of a little bit older is you, it's, I mean, you regret because you wish you didn't waste so much time on it. Nobody cares about your stumbles because they're completely obsessed with yep. themselves. But um, you also, you actually have less time left 
And that lowers, it raises the stakes of being intentional and focused, but it lowers the stakes in terms of you caring about anything. You just don't have the luxury anymore. And I love that. I feel much more liberated. I, I know intellectually, I feel like I have a lot of the codes in that book, uh, you know, humbly, but I haven't always been able to implement it. It's still a work in progress to actually practice what I preach, but it's getting easier as I get older because I care less. All right. Other things in the book that, that caught my attention, I thought would be interesting. Um, You talk about reasons why people walk away from opportunities or they give up. Um, and again, you, you keep denying it, but this is, this is, it's an inspiring book. It's a motivational book. Um, and one of the biggest reasons that people give up is they say, I've, you know, or, you know, I've already put in so much time, energy, and money that I can't let this thing go, or that this is not a, uh, you know, um, I, I, I can't make changes, you know, in, in my life or in my business. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, you know, cause that yeah. happens to a lot of us that's happened to you. No, that's great. And I, and, and maybe I can just go uh, rewind half a second to sort of set up the premise of the, the book itself and this uh, how it all relates to this idea of burn the boats. Just quick, without doing a history lesson, I was always fascinated that Cortez is, you know, uh, it's ascribed to him, but he just had a better marketing campaign. Like it goes back to the beginning of recorded history. Mm -hmm. This idea that in order to um, to summon the mo the best of you, you need to actually eliminate optionality, particularly retreat. Right. And I was wondering, why is that? Why are we accept that in a military context, these fable generals? But we reject it in our personal life and we're cultivated, conditioned to believe that you need a backup plan. And when I did the research and the great study at Award and demonstrated that just thinking about plan B, one materially limits the likelihood you'll be successful in plan A, but it also makes you less motivated intrinsically. So that always, you know, fascinated me, the, the, uh, the relationship to those things. Hmm. And then I, so I, what I wanted to do is deconstruct in this book, uh, what are the metaphorical boats in our life that hold you back? Like what, what, you know, what are, it's not just retreat, it's anything that makes you, you know, look behind, look over your shoulder. Hmm. And those are buckets of imposter syndrome and our, you know, anxiety and, all these different, you know, other um, other avenues that I go into, right? We have our all have our medical metaphorical boats that we need to burn. So I find with people, when they continue to do the thing that doesn't make sense anymore, it's because they fail to define what are they burning the boats for. So I always say you burn the boats for goals, not tactics, right? You need to burn. So a lot of people when they create a business. They think the business was the goal. The business is just a manifestation of a desire to be free, mm. to have autonomy, to not have a boss, maybe to leave a legacy, whatever your meta goal is. But most people aren't rigorous enough in thinking, thinking it through. Right. So they say, if this business doesn't work out, I am doomed. And as a result, they become a Harvard case study and an escalation of commitment. So <laughs> I, 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 I'm, be, I, I'm a very realistic person. When you, when people reject this idea of burn the boat, it's mad. It sounds irresponsible. I have a whole matrix for how to process risk. But most importantly, I think people cling to bad ideas and continue to pursue them because they think they'll never have another good one. Yeah, and it's really important to know you're capable of coming up with a good idea. You're capable of coming up with an even better idea, and that's the thing you should be stressed about. You should be stressed about future Matt and the opportunity cost of pursuing this idea today. And most people are stressed about abandoning that particular idea. I, I mean, there's also a, a level of laziness in there as well. I mean, you know, my my I'm 58 years old, so I've been running my business now for 25 years. We implement CRM, you know, like customer relationship management software. It's a very niche business. Um, you know, I enjoy the business, but there's only so much growth that I can have in it. There's only so much money I can make with it. And yet I'm doing the exact same thing that you just said. I mean, you know, I am completely at fault of that. Um, if I was going to burn the boats, um, I would, I would get rid of this business because there, there are three or four other ideas that I have in the tech sector that I think would be a lot more profitable and a lot more challenging to do. 
but I'm lazy. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm older, I'm 58 and, and I don't know, I don't feel like I, uh, like I was 20 years ago. I've got like the energy or the enthusiasm or the interest to start up a whole new tech business. Do, do you know what I'm saying? So, oh, yeah. Well, are you being lazy or are you intentional? Or are you happy? I mean, I don't know, you know, at the end of the day, I'm happy. Well, <laughs> let's, let's talk, so to that, and I talk about this in a book a little bit, but I wish I'd talk about more. Um, I, I, uh, people always ask, because again, the premise of the book is that the joy of living is striving, this perpetual growth mindset, which I 100% do believe, but how do you make sure that you're staying on that path? For me, I ask a simple question of myself every day, every week, and it's barred from a zoning context. I don't know if it's in your notes, but it's, uh, it's what is the highest and best use of my time and resources today? Right. That's such a fundamental question because we are iterative creatures. We are evolving. You know, We're not standing still, better or worse. And so in land use, the reason why they asked that question is a, a warehouse in Chelsea in 1920 was where you slaughtered cows. You know, now it's where Keller Swift has like a, you know, her own indoor <laughs> swimming pool or whatever she's got in Tribeca, right? So right. we are the same way. I ask, now you, it sounds like you're asking yourself that question and you're like, ah, I should probably level up. But when, sometimes when we don't, it's because we were arrived at a place, all things considered, we're pretty happy and content yeah. with, and it's not yeah. worth, you know, disrupting it. So yeah but you're doing this yes but i'm still but i'm still making the same excuses you know um and and yet you know i guess everybody has their reasons let me okay let me i continue to move on only because there's just so many other questions i had for you um you do give some advice on starting a business as well you know matt and like you know if you're going to burn the boats um and and you talk about what's called proprietary insights and that um that topic is so because what i think your point is well I've, I've read what your point is is that um anybody could say you don't have to like recreate the wheel you don't have to be like super innovative you don't have to start uber or airbnb you know there are plenty of businesses that are out there that you could you could go into a similar business but if you bring your own proprietary insights into it to just make it that much better do you know what i mean and I, yeah i love that this is one of my well, one of the best parts about being an author is you get to put words to things that yeah. don't have language. And I remember going to college in sociology or anthropology. I'm like, these are just made up terms, but then I, I get to make my own now. So <laughs> proprietary insight is my way to capture a very powerful idea. And I philosophically always believe lower the bar. If you can lower the bar to action, lower the bar to, and we subconsciously or inadvertently raise the bar, raise the bar to launching a business, raise the bar to changing a job. You know, we raise it and we don't even realize we're doing it to ourselves, right? So the word proprietary insight is a way to lower the bar about what to launch a business. A lot of American business launching or creating looks like from Shark Tank, but that's actually a myth. Shark Tank's all about patents and inventions largely. And most right. people will never have an idea, but that's not where businesses come from. And I use the example in the book of Airbnb, like some kid named Brian, who's a good friend now, but happens to sleep on a futon in 2009 and is like, sounds like this would be a good business. To me, that would be absolutely insane to think that somebody's gonna be in my house and not steal my shit, but he knew better. And his <laughs> proprietary insight was the share, right? And so my message to people out there is we all sit in the stream of data. That's where proprietary insights come from. Now, this is an actually weirdly a data-driven, loosely defined concept because the data is the data of your life. I grew up here. I saw some. My proprietary insight that changed my life was that my mother had a GV as an adult. Right. And I was second. Yeah. I saw her go back to college and get two master's degrees. I was like, well, what if I did it on purpose? Now, just because nobody had, or some people had, I suppose, but I can't find them. And I decided to do it. Everyone listening to me right now has a proprietary insight that is either the uh, genesis 
of a new business, a new way of doing things, or maybe it's a promotion, but we dismiss them because we raise the bar on what we think it takes to launch a business. And that's yeah. why I'm so passionate. It's because we get we get caught up in in the whole Forbes Inc. entrepreneur. I mean, like everybody's got to be some super fabulous entrepreneur. Yeah. I mean, like you you mentioned about Airbnb. Like you know, if somebody had come to me twenty years ago to say like you know I want to start up a company and uh, we're going to use a mobile app to uh, so you can call a complete stranger to come and pick up your daughter to take her to you know another movie theater. I'd be like, are you out of your fucking mind? There's no way I'm going to invest in something like that. And meanwhile, you know, because I don't you know, I don't have that kind of thing. But I tell you what, I can you know you talk about proprietary insight. I am a full believer that every business uh, can be improved, you know, and I don't think, I think in 2023, you can still be a blacksmith in certain areas of this country and do a little bit better than the blacksmith down the road and be that much of a, and, and, and be able to build a little business off of that. There, there's no limitations to that. And I'm glad um, because I tell my students, you know, I teach at HBS and I always say like, just be careful. We fetishize and, and deify you know, the founders, entrepreneurs is 10 million or 5 million. And it's like, bypass the object of the exercise is to feed yourself and take sure. care of your family, provide a good life, go on vacation a couple of times a year, maybe have a meal, a bill, right? Like I stay very low to the ground around, do not stray too far from the object of the exercise. Cause I still feel like it could all be taken away from me at any point. And we dismiss sometimes these great little nuggets, like you said, I'll be the better blacksmith with one little iteration. Maybe I'll be the blacksmith who gives free coffee. Maybe I'll be the blacksmith with a subscription plan and you get unlimited shoes done, whatever the, whatever the hell, you know. I don't think a blacksmith makes shoes, by the way. Just want to be clear, but unless you're a horse, but that's okay. No, I, I, the blacksmith <laughs> that's a cobbler. cobbler combined together in one. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. But literally in my mind, I'm like, I wouldn't want to just do blacksmith, but if we can make a blacksmith and a cobbler, but, <laughs> but you know, maybe the, you know, my, 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 my point of it is what you just said. There, there's always a way to level up or improve upon a business, but we're actually not mentored that. And I think it does a disservice because the, the typical person who's listening to this has dismissed many a good idea because now, now here's the flip side back to lazy. This is the fact pattern, I, the majority fact pattern that I get presented with. Somebody would hear me give this speech. They'll try to get in touch with me on Instagram. I have an idea that electrical vehicles are going to make us have to reinvent gas stations. They're going to be these mini little malls. It's going to be, so go do it and I'll take some equity. It's like, yes, ideal. Ideas are bullshit and cheap. And that's where the majority of people do fall down is they, and then they wonder, how come my patent never got bought out by a patent troll? I'm like, patents are nothing. They're garbage, right? Like, yeah. so. I know that's a little tough talk and honest talk, like instead of going on a rescue mission, I'll give you some of the codes and, you know, maybe answer a couple of discreet questions, but like, you got to do the work. I've been killing, I was saying this to my kids the other day, like, I think I've been working at least 40 hours a week since I was 11, you know, and I don't say that poor me. I'm like, I'm proud of the compounding part of that 40 hours a week, but like the, 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 my career and my business and my wealth are not a byproduct of great ideas. It's of, of, of a vast amount of hard work. Yeah. Uh, how old are your kids? I got a whole range of kids. Uh, they're 14 to 22. Okay. So, you know, I have three kids and they're in their twenties. Um, and they're, they all have, one's a vet and one's an engineer and one's an accountant and they're all, they're doing great. Um, they work. I mean, you know, I, I always bristle when people like shit on the millennial generation, because I realize, you know, I'm sure like any generation, there's a percentage of people of a certain age that don't work that hard, but I see them and I see their friends and all that, and they are workers. And um, I don't know, man, one of the things I've just always learned is that the, the world has a big shortage of doers, you know, and you know, a lot of people come up with grand ideas to be multimillionaires or whatever, but 
you know, there, there's just not enough people that's just say, well, okay, that's a great idea. So I need, you know, who's going to execute that idea? Um, so when you do have people coming to you with that, you know, you, you, you must shake your head a lot and think to yourself, well, yeah, I'm sure that'd be great, but let me see, put it in action first before I get excited about yeah. it, you know? I, I always say like your job is somebody who's got a great idea uh, or wants to launch a business. If you, first of all, don't lobby people for approval or validation more than necessary to advance to the next phase. I find a lot of people have pointless energy trying to convince others. And I'm like, why did you need their buy-in, right? So I'm always uh, analyzing even my attempts to get buy-in when I'm like, what do I care if you agree with me, right? The reason why you don't agree with me is because you don't see the opportunity that I do. When I, when people come to me around that, um, that fact pattern, it is also a byproduct of we we have on a positive note we've told people like everything's accessible you can learn anything and watch any video on YouTube. People sometimes think that learning or knowing or associating with it is a proxy for doing, and it isn't. Just because you're around it, you read it, you study it, you watch you know, my partner Gary Vaynerchuk's you know hustle culture videos didn't make you an entrepreneur. You know, and so we have come to devalue experience a bit and hard work. To and I think that sometimes is selling people full, fool's gold, right? Because then they wake up like, I, I watched every video on YouTube from yeah. this guru, and yet I'm still not rich. You know, you know Gary Vaynerchuk is a, is a perfect example of that. I mean, you know, I mean, he comes from a background. His family had a, you know, wine and liquor, you know, store. He's, you know, he works fucking hard every day. I mean, he has his own, you know, investor firm, a VC firm, his own PR and communicates. You know him because, you, you know, you, you know him. Um, and you know that that is a guy that can talk about stuff because he's actually doing it. And of course, there's a whole world of people that talk about stuff and they're not even doing anything. So that's something that, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, it's the, the world needs yeah. to do it. And I think that right. you're, the point in your book, I think is, is well taken. Uh, more questions for you. Um, you have a whole section about, you know, about your anxiety, basically, and optimizing your, your mental health. Um, you come across as a very like chilled out guy and, you know, you know, you know, dealing with my stuff and everything's fine. And here I am. And I know, I don't, again, I don't know you very well. I guarantee you that you go driving around in your car, pissed off about something, something's on your mind. Some person's pissing you off. Some, there's always shit that's like floating around. And we all do, no matter how put together we seem, you know, beneath the surface, there's, there's a lot. And I have, um, I have a really good client, Matt, that he, him and his two brothers run a manufacturing company in Trenton, actually. They're like a $30 million a year business. They have about 150 employees. And he says that the worst day of the year for me every year is New Year's Day because I got to wake up on New Year's Day and say like, oh, shit, I got to start all over again. You know, and these this this company, you know, because you're only as good as the last thing you do. And this company has been around for 25 years. They've got orders and backlog, but it's only like two to three months out and then it's like a cliff you know and he always says to me yeah. like I'm, i shit myself because what if there is a cliff and we fall over it i don't know what's out there you know what i mean and there's a guy who's been successfully running a business for over two decades is that you know so we all have that so you talk a little bit about you know we have a whole chapter about you know dealing with anxiety and and um you know optimizing it you know and and auditing your body and your mind so give us some thoughts on on dealing with anxiety and stress and I, I like that you've said, I do manifest in the world as, you know, calm and collected, well-spoken. You've seen yeah. me on Shark Tank. You would know I was crumbling with imposter syndrome. And I, 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 I bring it up to say there's a, there's a difference between being emotionally regulated, which I am highly emotionally regulated and in control of myself, and having to manage anxiety. Yeah. And I think 
we don't distinguish anxiety. We're in a culture now, which is amazing, which we talk openly about mental health and we're all trying to get healed and cured and, and coddled, right? But like that, that doesn't tell the full story that anyone who does really hard things, like you're, I love this story, two decades in the same business, $30 million business. Yeah. Most people who don't have would presume like, man, that guy is living in Barbados. He's and, got it made. He's <laughs> printing money. He's what, you know, right. no, he's not. Guess, he's shitting himself. Yeah, people said it to me all the time. Like, Matt, why? Are, I mean, were you just running up the score? I was like, no, I'm trying to touch the ceiling of my potential, right? I don't know what it is yet. And right. so I, 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 I think I, I want to call out anxiety because if you were to attempt to fully extinguish your anxiety, you would extinguish your drive. I'm 100% positive. But so I wanted to try to find a way to articulate in the book, and I call it the the uh, Lurch Dodds rule of optimal anxiety, a study going back to the 1920s about the fact that there is a state of anxiety which is enough to propel you to pursue your best and too much where you're crippled and paralyzed. Rather than me just give empty platitudes on an Instagram post, I tell the story in the book that's very humiliating of me going on this wonderful, happy show called Shark Tank, which everyone would be like, why are you stressed about that? But I, I show up in the world the way I am, and I have my own personal reasons about what I was going through at the time, and I talked about how I manage um, imposter syndrome. So the purpose of that chapter is to, make, one, make the point, there is an optimal anxiety a level of anxiety, do not extinguish it, and number two, here's how to identify the difference between a catal uh, you know, catalytic anxiety and derailing, paralyzing uh, anxiety. And I have toggled between both of those. And so, <laughs> you know, but but I will, important for anyone listening is trying to reconcile the concepts of being well-spoken or manifesting. It's about being emotionally regulated. It's about doing what it takes to be able to like, all right, you know, I mean, I'm talking to you right now and somebody got three hours sleep last night because I'm dealing with a uh, you know, uh, situation with my companies that I just, I keeps me, hyper aroused, you know, yeah. like, God, damn, I got to deal with something about it. But um, anyway, I love that chapter in the book, because that's the part that people will respond to me say, you don't usually have somebody of your success or stature, whatever that means, talking about, you know, anxiety or imposter syndrome. And that's what I really set out to do with the book is like, I want to tell stories in a way that people can relate to. Don't connect with me as a white rich guy in Shark Tank, but as a kid who ate government cheese at 16, still recovering from some of that trauma. And let me tell it through storytelling and not through a prescriptive book that is very boring and redundant by chapter six. You know, one thing I'm very proud of with the book, I think the chapter nine, eight, nine are even stronger than chapter one, you know, and I kind of wanted to finish even harder. And I think a lot of business books, you're like, oh, chapter three, really useful. Last six could have been a blog post. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I agree. It keeps up the quality all the way through. And and that, that book, on manage, the chapter on managing your anxiety is a later chapter in the book. Even later in the book um, is a chapter about um, partners. Um, we only have a few minutes left, and I, um, I, because this this interests me so much. You, over the course of your life, you have made investments in people. You have hired people, not in companies. Um, you have hired people. Uh, you have you you have worked with many different personalities, both in professional sports and in the business world, and combination. So you've gotten some experience in evaluating and you know figuring out people. So listen, you're a young guy. You're you're in your late 40s. So you've got a lot of deals ahead of you, and you don't seem like the kind of guy that's going to retire and go to some you know Caribbean island someday. You're going to be doing this. You're 85 years old. So you've got some partners ahead of you. So you've had 20, 30 years to learn. Give me some thoughts on evaluating prospective partners. Who are the people that you meet? that and this is in your book you know you've got some thoughts on it here but but give me some your your thoughts now on people that you meet that you're like this person is the kind of person i can be in business with versus this is not the kind this is not the kind of person i would want to be in business with yeah rather than make the script that i'll just free associate what comes to mind when you're Please. asking me 
and I'll talk about the evolution of my thinking a little bit. But the um, the one thing, the number one thing that gets me excited, and and when I, when something it triggers something, some part of my brain, the primitive part that says, "Oh, that you have the just figure it out gene," the kind of person that everyone else says about, "Oh." Bob or Sally, like they just figure it out, you know, yeah. that's yeah. one of the most valuable qualities. We call that grit or scrap, but it's more than that. It's a crazy combination of somebody who's, you know, has great EQ and navigates through tough situations. So just figure it out. I look for people who have a rare blend of what I call confidence and humility. And people sometimes think those are in opposition. They actually feed each other because as you know, the business five years after it was founded resembles very little of the original pitch deck. A business, a successful business is the byproduct of endless pivots and iterations. So I look for who has the propensity to make the pivots, not the presence of the pivots, but the propensity, because that's the future predictor, right? And what I believe predicts and shows propensity is confidence, because a confident, self-possessed person would be like, all right, it's not working out. They're willing to look within to audit the problems as opposed to amplify the hyperbole, right? Sure. And humility to say, I get stuff wrong and I'm willing to course correct. Those matter because I think the universe is very benevolent. It always gives you a one last shot to save your ass. And you, we all know that moment where it's like, damn it, if I didn't write the check, I knew I shouldn't have done it or damn it, I shouldn't have married that person or damn whatever. The universe gives you one chance. I'm looking for the qualities that predict whether somebody will, will course correct. And so over the years though, despite what I'm saying to you, I found all sorts of reasons to compromise those views. <laughs> well, but this idea is so great. It'll probably work out. Well, you know, uh, I'll fix them. Yeah. And I'm a little more seasoned and some gray hairs and just uh, 48 years old. I realize you're right about your prism. You're wrong in the application right. and you need to stick with the application more at this part, because I, one, I'm getting more tired. Every human being gets a little more exhausted by fixing things. But two, it's a little grandiose to think you're always going to change people and you're going to fix the situation. So I'm actually looking for more partners where I can bask in the glory and the reflective glory of how wonderful they are. I look for people who humble me in some important way where I recognize, oh, I do not possess that. Let's use Gary Vaynerchuk for a second. Not only is Gary an incredible trust, you know, trend spotter, and the deal I did with him is probably enough for us to just shut down the company. Like, mm -hmm. I don't have to do work because of the check I wrote at that bagel store in 2009. Mm -hmm. Gary sleeps eight hours a night, mm -hmm. could be the most incredible incoming of people doubting he's sincere or even have a, an actual problem. And he sleeps on it like a baby because he's completely at ease with who he is and does not need a single other person to agree, even though I think he loves the um, adulation, right? He's yeah. an extra. Um, and so- Here's why I'll, I'll summarize why that's important. Look for people who humble you in a, in a in a way, not that you envy them or you reject yourself, but let you know that th that there's even better versions of you out there that you can maybe strive to approximate a little bit better. That's how I've changed uh, more. I realize I can make my process a lot more efficient when I see somebody who's doing something that I really regard or think is amazing, and they do it absolutely better than I have ever I could. I leaned further into that. Whereas before I leaned into situations where I could fix the person or, you know, save the person. It's great advice. Um, and it, it's helpful when trying to evaluate somebody in the end, it's funny as people get older um, you, you just mentioned about, you know, you, you, the, you lose a little bit of energy to, to fix stuff all the time. You know, you get tired of doing that. You know, if you're 28, you have a lot of hunger to do that. Uh, when you're 48, 58, 68, you lose it. And maybe that's why so many people as they grow older, they become more of investors or partners, you know, or minority partners or silent partners. And they let the younger generation actually do. And the older generation provides the capital for them to do what they got to do. And who knows? Yeah, you know, that's, 
actually think too, what we lose and maybe a little bit of energy and a little bit of willingness to eat crap. We, we got gain, the brains. We gain an efficiency through pattern. Right. It'll take me, I will arrive at twice as fast as somebody half my age because I have pattern recognition that they don't. So I actually think the reason there's a reason why the average entrepreneur is 42 years old when they launch their business, because pattern recognition is more important than, than energy or hunger. It just yeah. is. And I so agree. I think we have the benefit of maybe I'm older now, but you I actually really do believe it. And at I might 48 at 48, you are chat GPT. You know, you've been trained on all this data at least through September of 2021, you know, so that you can actually use that. <laughs> no, but I really, I'm, I'm, I'm chat GP and I've been stripped of my dignity several times. <laughs> so I'm chat GPT without With a humility. Yeah, I'm 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 a dangerous, deadly assassin, right? Because I I have nothing to lose anymore. I'm not a, and I'm not ashamed. <laughs> One final question, and I'll let you go. Um, you know, and again, we've we, we've we've covered some what's in the book, but only a fraction. So, um, for any of you guys who are watching this, you know, listening to this, you know, we're we're we're, we're tip of the iceberg stuff. But um, Matt, you you do talk. You, you did make one comment near the end of the book about taking big leaps, not incremental progress. I love this. Which yeah. fascinates me. But, you know, God, so many things that are so different between you and me because you are a risk taker and I'm an accountant. You know, so. Uh, you know, to me, it's always incremental progress, you know, like as long as we're moving forward, that's the right way to do it. And you're like, no, fuck that. If you're going to do it, you got to do it big and you got to take big. Talk to me a little bit about why you think that's important. Yeah. Love this topic. Very, very passionate about this topic. And again, talking to my children, I always say, look, uh, whenever you're confronting a problem or a situation or an opportunity, always choose defiance before you choose acceptance, because you can't go back and go and choose a defiance after the fact, but you can always choose acceptance at any point. So I choose to have reality jammed down my throat right. when I need to. Um, and that's the bias. So this relates to what I'm talking about with incrementalism versus step change. Those are the words, right? There is um, a subcurrent running throughout our lives and society, the invisible rules, as I call them, that are operating upon us. And one of the most powerful ones is this bias towards incrementalism. And there's a reason why. Incrementalism simply means first you must do this before you get to do this. It goes back to the Taylor method in the factory, and it goes back to corporate hierarchies, right? It's very efficient to organize human beings according to these bands. It's the reason why I never became a lawyer when I was supposed to go to Skadden Arps after I graduated law school. And I'm like, how long will it take for me to make a partner? And I'm like, well, typically, you know, you get there in 11, but if you really outshine, you can get to eight. And I'm like, well, how do I outshine? Well, 2,300 hours a year. And I was like, well, what happens when I beat my colleague and I'm just better? I'm like, you might be <laughs> track, right? And I was like, well, here's the advance. I will not be being a lawyer. So here's the point. It, 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 there, it, you should always question whether this is an opportunity for me to do a step change. In other words, let me eschew the hierarchy, the presumed hierarchy, and attempt, can I launch the business today, even though I've never had my own business before? I tell this incredible story in the, uh, in the book about a Harvard student named Alex, who was a special operator in the US military, was just an incredibly brilliant human being, Harvard MBA, and had understands how um, innovation should be deployed, right? He really wanted to create his own fund. But he comes to my office on the eve of taking a soul-crushing job at a big New York private equity firm. And he's like, hey, I start my job, you know, next week. And, I, and I'm like, you don't look happy. He's like, well, I really wish I could start my own firm. I'm like, well, why can't you? He goes, well, I've never been a managing director in a fund before. I was like, well, I've written hundreds of checks. I didn't know. Is that a rule? Should that be part of my, my career? He's like, well, I mean, Matt, you know, the generally don't have to be a managing director. I was like, I don't know. If I were you, I'd go raise money. He goes, well, who's going to give me money? I said, nobody until somebody does. <laughs> anyway, long story short, three months later, calls me back, asked me if 
guys, I know you read this in the book. And I was excited for what? He goes, I'm going to send you some swag. What are you going to send me swag for? The firm I created when I walked out of your office. Now, the story gets better. This just happened three days ago. I'm reading the Wall Street Journal, a story about this kid, Alex, from Harvard Business School, who's a special operator, who just raised 69 million. This Alex you're talking about in the wall, just yeah. three days ago? Okay, keep going. Just came out three days ago. How that kid raised $69 million, much of it from JP Morgan, to do round two of his fund. And so I'm saying anybody listening here, this is not a rejection of expertise. It's quite the opposite. It's an embrace of your own assessment of your expertise, regardless of things that you believe you must first do. Ask yourself, who made the rule? And two, do I believe the rule? Can I overcome the rule? I'll simplify it, right? I, I graduated from Queens College, you know, with a degree. It's, it's a city school. It took me seven years. I went to Florida Law, pretty good school, but not Harvard. You know, four years a night was on law review, right? I always wanted to be at a top academic institution and teach and scratch that itch, right? The 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 step the incrementalist approach would be that I would teach at Queens College. That would take two seconds. The more would have been teach at Fordham Law, take a take a little longer, probably teach there. I wanted to teach at the best place in the world I could think of, and that was Harvard Business School. It took me a year of my, of my life to put together that course. And now it's one of the top rated intensive programs at the school, most popular. That's the point of increment. You will never know what could have been possible if you don't have a bias towards both defiance and step change before you submit to the invisible rules. Book is called Burn the Boats, Toss Plan B Overboard and Unleash Your Full Potential. I've been speaking to Matt Higgins, the author. Matt, thank you very much. It was a great conversation. The book is fantastic. I want to wish you the best of luck with it. And uh, I'm sure we're going to continue to uh, hearing a lot more about you as you, uh, over the next 40 years, continue to develop no, and build businesses. The work of my life and so passionate. So if you read it, DM me on LinkedIn or Instagram. I read every single message because that's the thing that makes me work harder the next day. So it won't disappear. People are always like, you read these? I'm like, every one of them. So let me know what you think. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, best of luck. Let's definitely stay in touch, all right? Everybody, you have been watching Biz Books. My name is Gene Marks. Thanks for tuning in. If you want to see more interviews with great authors and smart business leaders like Matt, please join us every other week for a new episode. Thanks again for watching or listening. We'll see you again soon. Take care.